think because now my work is largely about serving clients and um, building relationships with clients uh, who are my customers in my my work now. Um, I think stakeholder engagement is so essential. Welcome to Manage This, the podcast by project managers for project managers. This is our time to meet and talk about what really matters to you in the field of project management. Our desire is to give you some perspective, some ideas, some real-life examples of what success looks like and how to get there. I'm your host, Nick Walker, and with me are the two guys who guide our discussion, Andy Crow and Bill Yates. And today we get to talk with someone who truly has a global perspective as a project manager. Laura Butcher is an organization and leadership development consultant. She began in human resources at GE Appliances and GE Aircraft Engines, then at Nations Bank, where she led teams following the Nations Bank Bank America merger. After that, she made the move to London as Delta Airlines Director of Human Resources in Europe. Laura is the co-founder and principal of Blue Key Partners, a consulting practice focused in the areas of learning and leadership development, including executive assessment and coaching. Laura, thanks so much for being here with us on Matters This. Thank you for inviting me. We want to talk with you about working with global customers and engaging with stakeholders around the world. But first of all, can we just take some time to get to know you a little bit better? Tell us a little bit about yourself and and what your first experiences were like with GE as you traveled internationally. So my background uh, in corporate America was with uh, GE, Bank of America, and Delta Airlines for about 15 years. Small um, companies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, then began my consulting practice uh, about 12 years ago, um, largely in the areas of organization development, leadership development. But my early experiences were in the human resources function, where I became very passionate about learning and development. Um, I had experiences uh, supporting many global um joint venture partners uh, with GE Appliances and GE Aircraft Engines. I did some work with uh, GE Crotonville, which is the Corporate Leadership Training Institute mm. in Crotonville, New York, uh, where I was part of an adjunct faculty to take some of the GE uh, workout and uh, change acceleration program training uh, to our colleagues in Asia and Europe. So my uh, I was bitten with the bug of working internationally uh, mm-hmm. in my early days with GE. So what kind of uh, prompted you? What 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 was it that bit you about working internationally? I think um, I always enjoyed uh, the experience of seeing new places, um, experiencing new things, uh, eating new cuisines, <laughs> uh, uh, seeing uh, sites and the history of places. Um, but I think beyond that, I began to really appreciate le- working with people who see the world differently from myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, what I found particularly engaging about it. So um, oftentimes the work that we're doing in human resources or in training and development is complex anyway, because we're dealing with human behavior. But when you add the dimension of culture differences on top of that, it can be, you know, quite interesting work (laughs) and, you know, fulfilling. 
What, what countries did you deal with uh, when you were with GE? Um, well, we had joint venture partners in uh, Asia. So we were establishing a, a joint venture site with a Korean firm, uh, but the site was in China. So we had multiple cultures that we were bringing together there. Uh, we also had a joint venture partner in India. So I traveled to those places uh, working with, with our partners in uh, the learning and development function largely. So um, a lot of what GE brings to its partners around the world is its culture and its reputation for excellence in training and development of people. And so um, that was a great foundation for my career to begin, and it provided me a launching pad to continue to do what I'm doing now. Laura, it's funny. I got asked about a decade ago by somebody what my opinion was on the state of L&D. And when I heard that, I thought, L and D, what is that? And I'm thinking, is this, I could not get past uh, the fact that I'm used to thinking of it as labor and delivery, not learning and development. It's just <laughs> yes. funny. You know, you hear this, these, these terms put around. But why, do, why are you passionate about that? Why, why is that a particular passion for you? Well, I always have believed that um, great leaders are great learners, people who are constantly challenging themselves to explore new things, to push themselves out of their comfort zone. And uh, so I think that's a principle on which, you know, my career, my interests uh, have expanded. So, you know, I've seen great leaders are almost always great readers. Yes. So that ties in True. with yes. what you're saying. Absolutely. Mm. Great There's got to be a learning curve, though, when it, when it comes to uh, working with people internationally. Uh, did you find it uh, initially challenging? Oh, I found several occasions, and I continue to find occasions <laughs> where it's challenging. Um, I've had the uh, great fortune this past year to continue to work um, outside of the U.S. with, with clients both in uh, Europe and in Asia. And uh, it's always challenging. It's always challenging not to fall into the trap of seeing things from your perspective only. Mm. And um, I think that's something that I have to, you know, challenge myself to step back and say, you know, what, what am I presuming about this situation that I ought to be questioning um, mm. rather than assuming so. Laura, one of the experiences that you've had that's really unique is you've also lived and worked outside of the nation that you were born in, you know, in our yes. case, the U.S. Uh, when you were working for Delta Airlines, another small company, <laughs> uh, you had the opportunity to move and uh, you served as the director of human resources for Europe and you were based out of London. Yes, yes. So you moved to London. Exactly. That had to be an exciting but intimidating opportunity for you. So I, I did the triple um, challenge, I guess. I changed jobs and changed companies. So when I moved to Delta Airlines, my first assignment with Delta was in the UK. Mm. Um, I uh, moved homes. So I left a comfortable place in the United States to for the unknown of moving house and uh, all of those things. And then I had a child all at the same time. Oh, wow. So those things are not customarily happening all at the same time for because someone. Because anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. Right. So there were a bunch of obstacles. I mean, this is an amazing opportunity. But one of the, the obstacles that I wanted to ask you about, because I know there are, we have listeners who have these kind of opportunities. How did you overcome being the American in another nation. So in this case, in the UK. Well, you know, in the UK, 
I always have a funny saying that it's a you, we're two countries divided by a common, common language. language. Yes. <laughs> so yes. uh, again, the assumption that simply because we both are speaking English that we're communicating effectively is not necessarily a good assumption. Uh, the other thing is just be, being uh, able to adapt mm. your style and approach to be more um, like that of the people that you're interacting with. So uh, understanding that the sense of humor can be different, that the use of language can be different. People can be far more direct or indirect. Um, the way people view authority in the organization and how decisions get made and how influence is managed all of those things have a cultural dimension to them so even understanding with between the US and UK what mm. those differences look and feel like you know i also in that role had responsibility for supporting 13 countries um ranging from russia turkey india greece to the UK. Hmm. So we had a range of cultures within that and experiences of the, of the staff and teammates um, that I work with. So that was a, it was just a, a great personal and professional experience hmm. um, because it added that dimension of culture on top of the professional you know, function that I supported. I'm wondering if you can think of any examples uh, of, of maybe communication difficulties <clears throat> or anything off the top of your head. I can certainly think of, of times when I s had to almost rise up out of myself and, and look at the situation as if I were, you know, watching it as a movie. <laughs> I found myself um, one time we were having to restructure um, teams in various countries to downsize or to outsource certain functions. And one of those occasions happened to be in Greece. So I found myself on the four-hour flight from London to Athens um, to meet with the labor minister mm. of Greece. And I'm thinking on the flight, I could never have predicted that this would be where I would <laughs> right. be, you know, a year ago. And I'm not quite certain what will happen when I get here. Um, and so, you know, the saying, it's all Greek to me, that was exactly <laughs> what this experience was like, because the, the meeting took place and all that was spoken in the meeting was in Greek. And it, I had to work through translators. Wow. And of course, uh, you know, the emotion level, just in a normal conversation with people of a Greek origin, tends to be a little heightened from <laughs> our own here in the U.S. And so all of those cues were sending off so many things in my mind and me trying to understand what's my role here, how do I influence the outcome when I'm not working within an element that I'm comfortable. So it was really an interesting experience. You touched on something that made me think uh, when you said there are many times I have to rise up out of my uh, own situation and look at it. That is one of my favorite tools to use, not just in cultural situations, but anytime I'm in maybe a crisis, mm. um, some problem that's really weighing on me is to stop and think, okay, if I were a consultant or if I were a friend, yes. uh, <clears throat> what, what advice would I give a person in this situation? Yes. And it helps to, I don't know what it is about that, if it just breaks that cycle of anxiety or stress or whatever, but it's mm. helpful to, uh, it's a helpful technique. You kind of uh, touched on there. Yes. Well, I think it helps to um, step out of your own 
position. But that's hard. Oh, it's so hard. It's <laughs> yeah. so hard. Yeah, you make because, it sound easy. <laughs> well, we get very invested in our positions. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Yes. We like to be right. We like to have the answer. We like to be seen as the expert. Mm. And I think it takes um, a degree of humility to step back and say... Ego gets in the way. Yeah, I don't always know the answer, or I shouldn't presume I know the answer. Right. That brings me right to another obstacle that I, I'm assuming you had to overcome. You were... So Delta's based in the U.S. You were sent... You're, there you are in London. You're working with all these other nations then out of London. But you're still the one sent from HQ, now I you know I can relate to that a bit where I was kind of the person sent out to the remote location and uh yeah. so how did you overcome that obstacle cuz sometimes those people are seen as you know the snitch or the insider or the one who's going to be you know towing the company line so how did you overcome some of that Yeah I think it's not uncommon for the finance leader and the human resources leader in multinational companies for those two leadership roles to often be um, people who've been deployed from headquarters or from the home country, if you will, uh, into those uh, field assignments, whether those are even in the U.S. Uh, you'll oftentimes see that the HR person, the finance person uh, or leaders are are from the headquarters organization. I think that's largely because, you know, finance is the steward of the fiscal uh, elements of the organization and human resources often is the steward of the culture or the values mm, right. of the organization and uh, ambassadors to, to take that out uh, and to ensure there's some, um, you know, uh, orientation to that uh, in all the locations. So, um, so I, I think that that's, in you know sophisticated multinational companies, that's probably not uncommon to have people deployed from headquarters. But I do think that part of building trust in those roles is to acknowledge when headquarters doesn't have it right necessarily, or that you know to help translate what headquarters is trying to accomplish. And maybe they're not going about it in a way that's completely aligned with how the region or the field organization might choose to implement, um, but providing a feedback, a conduit of information and feedback from the region to headquarters. Um, If you have strong relationships back at headquarters, you can often elevate issues that wouldn't otherwise get attention of headquarters. So when you can take on something that's important to the people that you're supporting in that region and be successful um, in influencing an outcome that's favorable in their view or that recognizes how they might be different from headquarters. Your stock goes up. Your stock goes up. But you know what? Those two functions that you named uh, are both kind of intimidating, too. Uh, To a lot of people, a lot of people, uh, their stomachs tighten up when they see somebody come in from finance, when they see somebody come in from HR, because those two, a lot of times are imposing uh, some kind of compliance or trying to bring Mm -hmm. people into compliance in some areas, fiscal compliance, fiscal oversight, HR compliance, and it's intimidating. You know, one of the things you see in, in corporations around the world all the time is they're either going from a centralized model where headquarters is very strong and in control and sort of distributing out that compliance, or it's the power is swinging out to the markets and the markets are coming back and they're making their own decisions and there's a little bit of independence. And uh, there's, a, there's a constant expansion contraction about that. And it's really funny. You hear all the markets say, headquarters is out of touch. They don't know what's going on. They're mm-hmm. coming down with all these rules. We're the ones making the money. Leave us alone to run our business. 
up to a point, then all of a sudden the the chains come on mm-hmm. and the yeah, <laughs> you know swings. the walls clamp down, mm-hmm. right? Yes, because they there is no one right answer to right. that. You no, know, centralized or decentralized. And I think that that organizations course correct over mm-hmm. time because they find they've they've pushed the boundary too far in terms of autonomy of the regions, or they've pushed the boundary too far in terms of centralization. The of healthy ones course correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But right. that's the job. That's the job of leadership is to constantly be monitoring yes. that and and feeling which way it's going and is it headed the right direction or is it too too much the wild west exactly and that's got to be an especial challenge when you're dealing with with different cultures you know you, you said as the hr person you were sort of the the keeper of the culture uh, but when you're dealing with a different culture did you ever run into a situation where uh, they said you, you know we we just don't do it that way we <laughs> we, we do things differently here <laughs> right. Yes, I I have certainly experienced situations where there was a policy or a practice that was being emanated from headquarters that this is something what we want to have implemented uh, throughout our all of our operation, which culturally wasn't well suited in some cases. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you the, I'll go back to the example that I shared about the outsourcing and my experience in Greece. Well, outsourcing was a customary practice in a lot of corporations for certain non-critical functions. Um, but in some countries, that procedure and that process um, is culturally counter to what people believe about how organizations, you know, what role organizations and companies play in one's life or livelihood. Um, so those experiences, yes, you see the clash, you know, very clearly. When you look back over your experience, Laura, with um, with Delta Airlines in London, based in London, I know you've got a lot of lessons learned. Sorry. One of the ones that, that you and I talked about was the the fact that you were walking into a situation and inheriting. It wasn't a new position. You were inheriting a position. For so many of our project managers, they can relate to that. They're leaders who are stepping in and replacing a leader who was there before. Always really fun to jump on a horse <laughs> midstream. And- <laughs> <laughs> right, try to figure that out. What direction are we going? Yes, right. exactly. You brought out such a great point of, boy, it's good to know your, It's good to know what you're stepping into. It's good to know the history. Talk a bit about that. Well, I've had the experience of, um, you know, having a number of jobs, some of which I've followed people who have been less, perceived as less than effective. And sometimes right. you follow people who are, have been, perceived they're legendary yes they've already you know put the plaque with their picture on the wall and (laughs) yes so uh so you know understanding the context in which you're taking on a new assignment whether it be a new role formally in the organization or a new project or program that you're taking uh ownership for i think is particularly important because how you approach those early days in those new assignments um, can vary dramatically in terms of things you can do to be more effective and more likely to be successful and things that you can do that actually are obstacles to your success. Um, so how do you do that homework? You know, what's appropriate to ask or dig into? Well, certainly from the person that you're working 
for um, to understand what is the history of this role in the organization, what's the reputation of this role, how do people view the work that this role is responsible for, and then learning a great deal about your predecessor. You know, what was working well that your predecessor was doing? What were things that, that they people still see opportunity for improvement? Mm. Those might be the early places that you want to focus on. And certainly to be respectful of things that are working well. Um, because I think so often people jump into jobs and they're trying to make a difference so quickly that they don't take stock of things that um, are important to other people mm. that be maintained or some consistency that people want to feel so that not everything is changing all at once, but that mm. you're being very selective and intentional about the things you're choosing to change and, you know, the sequence of those. Humans fear change. Great point. The, the team that you're inheriting, they fear change. Their leader has changed. So be aware that don't try to change everything at once. Well, that's, you know, taking away uncertainty from people. I think when people feel uncertain, people tend to stop what they're doing. And that slows the organization down. So if you can remove uncertainty for people to say, you know, what we're doing here is very, very important and we need to keep our foot on the gas, move forward and don't let the change of my coming into this role be an impediment to us continuing to make progress on that. There's that a cynical old truism that uh, if you're new in a role, the first person you can blame is the guy or the girl who just left. <laughs> and then the second one you blame is the vendor. <laughs> <laughs> right. You do have that honeymoon period, though, I think, where, you know, you can ask a lot of questions. You can you know, not feel like you have to have all the, the right. answers. Right. You can demonstrate that you are a good listener and that you care about what other people, what motivates other people, what needs they have, how you can be responsive to them. I've seen so many people struggle coming into that honeymoon period, though, when they've got it all teed up, everything's laid out beautifully for them, and they struggle to get traction. Hmm. And I've watched it happen over and over. Some people do. I mean, the successful ones do, the ones who are going to move on in their career. But there are there is a, a significant percentage of people who walk into a new situation, and I don't know if they're suffering from imposter syndrome or they truly freeze up and don't know what to do. But instead of walking in and saying, okay, I've got a plan and here we go. And so, you know, one of the things that Bill and I work on uh, is coming up with a 90-day plan for somebody when they start to try and at least illuminate, okay, here's what success could look like. You know, mm -hmm. here's, a, here's a series of steps because it can be intimidating. Somebody walks into a new position halfway through a project or halfway through or even at the beginning and they don't know what to do. I, I don't know if that's it. I don't know what it is. Something goes wrong in there and disrupts that. Mm -hmm. I think the idea of having um, a structured plan to orient someone to a new role, and if that's not provided by your manager, you need to create Do it, it for yourself. yourself. Yeah. It, it's, it's almost negligent to just bring somebody into a position, drop them and leave them and say, well, figure it out. <laughs> Some people will. You know, the really smart ones, the really successful and driven type A people will. But a lot of people don't know. I mean, they don't even know what success looks like. So at least give them some vision. I want to draw on your experience a little bit. Um, you've been in human resources. You're, you're a consultant now. Um, you are able to sort of bring a broad perspective to some of the issues facing project managers these days. One of those issues is 
face-to-face engagement, stakeholder engagement uh, that we're seeing so much more of these days. What advice would you give to folks who who maybe are are seeing more of this in their job descriptions uh, that maybe they haven't before? I think because now my work is largely about serving clients and um, building relationships with clients uh, who are my customers in my, my work now. Um, I think stakeholder engagement is so essential uh, as a practice and to have strong skills in that area, to understand people's goals, to understand your clients' or customers' goals, to understand their needs, to understand their motivations, uh, their personal aspirations. So uh, the more you can understand all of that as context, the better you can support uh, them in achieving those things. And if your client can achieve what they're after, you will achieve what you're after. So I believe that that's a mutually uh, complementary uh, situation. So stakeholder engagement to me is essential to success as a consultant. One of the things that I should uh, let our listeners know too is I've seen Laura perform firsthand. Uh, we, as an organization, we partnered with Laura's organization on past projects. And uh, that's one reason she's in here, because she's phenomenal at stakeholder engagement. All right. I want I want you to elaborate on that, because you had some high praise, and yeah. Bill and I can be tough critics. Over. <laughs> <laughs> and so you had some high praise uh, about that engagement when you came back. Yeah, I'd come back to the office and I'd say, okay, Laura's got it going on. You know, I see the depth of relationship that she has with the key decision makers at this customer. And this is a very large, large organization. And high, the, those that we were working with were in very high positions. And uh, there was a level of trust and familiarity. There was, you know, there was a depth to that relationship that I could tell had been cultivated for a long time. So we hold you in high regard. You do really Thank well you. at that. Thank you. And likewise. likewise. <laughs> yeah. And Bill specifically commented on your ability uh, to to read a room and to read individuals oh, in the room. So she so is. I want to I want to <laughs> go ahead yeah. and put you on the spot about that. Any advice you yeah. can give people related to? Uh, is that just intuition? Is it just something you're born with? Is it something you've cultivated and you have a strategy for? Well, I think doing your homework is really important. You know, to step into a meeting without understanding who's going to be in the room and what are they likely to, what's likely their view about this. And even asking directly, what is your view about this before you get into the meeting? Yeah, because who knows? You read something about me online that may tell you next to nothing about who I am and what I'm like. Mm. Right. Or or how this topic is either important to you or not important to you or in what way. So, uh, you know, doing your homework and, and asking a lot of questions to get a sense of what are the dynamics that are going on around this topic, uh, uh, the meeting that I'm leading or the meeting that I'm attending and that kind of thing. So that's a methodical approach. So it's not intuition at all. It's just your it's a left brain logical Flowchart? What? <laughs> well, it's probably a combination of the two. Um, I tend to be more structured in my uh, approach so to the work I. that yeah. I do. So that's m- more my comfort zone. So to take a, a more logical, kind of fact-based, planful approach would be more my natural tendency. I, I have worked with others uh, 
who I observe their strengths to be in far more intuitive understanding of what's yep. going on in the room. And so when you can find a partner who has that as strength to marry up with my more planful approach, right. that's a powerful combination. So I, I did that formally. My wife is very intuitive and kind of frighteningly intuitive <laughs> about people. She reads people really, really well. And um, our son has an interesting mixture because he can also read people really well. He's got he's probably more like her than he is like me because I don't. I take it at face value. If you tell me something, I'm just going to assume that you're telling me the truth and that mm-hmm. there's no hidden agenda. Um, uh, she's not that way. She can read people really well. I mean, it's almost like one of the X-Men or something. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting talent. I don't superpower. have. No, it is. Uh, we call that her superpower and, uh, and I admire it. I don't have it. Um, it's just an interesting thing. I'm, I'm probably more like you taking a, a more studious approach and a more analytical approach. Well, I've seen the right brain of Laura in action too. She, re- she does read a room extremely well. She's, she's done her homework. But then she's picking up on body language, right. uh, tone of voice, uh, even positioning where people are standing or sitting in a room. Uh, we were working in our in some of our experience. We were working with a number of cohorts, and uh, there were other vendors, there were other providers of training, and uh, who were there that had particular specialties. And uh, just seeing how she she was the orchestrator, so she was reading the room making sure that the right voices were being heard at the right time and not letting anyone take over the room uh, that would be to the detriment of the, of the goals of the course. And uh, so there's some right brain in there too. But I know, you know, there are two key words that, uh, Laura, you shared with me. Uh, one of the things that I think you've shared, the, one of your keys to success is being able to demonstrate empathy and humility. And uh, just elaborate on that a bit. Well, I think uh, being able to have the perspective of others uh, and to see their point of view. Um, Again, I think largely we are often in selling mode. We're selling our ideas. We're selling our solutions. We're selling our our credibility and expertise. And uh, sometimes that gets in the way of actually finding the best solution or finding a solution that everyone can support. Um, So, you know, being able to step outside again and look at the situation more broadly to see things from other people's point of view, uh, I think has been very important to my my success, uh, to the fulfillment that I receive out of the work that I do, uh, and hopefully to my clients and customers' success. That's um, an incredibly refined skill, though, because today... Um, you know, in the climate we're in, if somebody disagrees with you, then the first thing you do is is project negative motives on them. They're a bad person. They're part of a bad political movement, whatever it is. There's no subtlety of trying to look at things from their perspective. And I've used this uh, a long time ago. I had a person uh, that, that uh, I had a lot of conflict with this guy. And we constantly were locking horns over one thing or another. And I started finally saying, okay, here's what I believe your argument is or your position is. Am I correct? And I would go through it with him until we got it right. But a lot of times when I'd turn around and say, tell me what you think mine is. And it would be, well, you just don't like me. Or you just, you know, it would be something like that. It's hard to step out of your own story 
and look at it objectively. I mean, again, that's that's an incredible skill to cultivate. Yes. And it takes a tremendous amount of trust yeah. to be able to have that kind of conversation with people. Right. Uh, so, again, I think it does come back to how have you established trusting relationships yeah. with the people that you're working with so that you can disagree but still work productively together and seek solutions that everyone can support. I wanted to ask a follow-up question on that, Laura. Uh, building trust, icebreaking. What advice do you have for project managers who are moving into this customer-facing role or some other level of higher exposure they have uh, with clients, key decision makers? They're looking for advice. How can I break the ice? How can I build that trust? What are some, some tips you give them? Well, I think, again, do your homework. So know the audience that you're interacting with, whether that be an executive sponsor for your project or program. Uh, it could be an external customer or uh, another third party that you need to partner with uh, to achieve the goals of your project, project or program. Um, but know your audience and be ready to adapt your style mm. to that audience or that culture. So I talk about culture in terms of international experiences or experiences working in other parts of the world. But culture differences exist within all organizations. And so even within your own organization, whether it's a field or a headquarters location, or it might be a certain, it might be marketing or engineering, they have different cultural norms yeah. that exist within the organization. So understand IT that. does. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Our friends in IT and human resources for yeah. that matter. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So understanding your audience and being able to adapt to to uh, work within the norms of that organization. And as a project manager, project managers are, are sometimes caught in the middle. You know, you're, you're that middle person between the sponsor, the team members, uh, the, the contractors, all, all the stakeholders, and, and you're probably dealing with different cultures, different personalities. What are the particular challenges of, of being able to empathize with all of those? Yes, and I, I haven't mentioned communications, but communications and information sharing, perspective sharing is essential. So when you've got, you know, subcontractors and contractors and clients and you're working to try to bring, align these resources toward a common goal, uh, communication is essential, effective communication. But again, framing communication in a way that it's um, easily digestible uh, and acceptable by the, the audience. So understanding their communication style and being able to adapt your style to, to work for them. Uh, builds credibility and it builds trust and confidence among the team that there's a clear direction and that there is alignment. Great. Have you seen, Laura, along that, that line, because this is such a common role where we're kind of the guy, the gal in the middle, you know, we are that person in the middle as a project manager. Have you seen, do you have any quick advice for, okay, please don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> any mistakes you've seen that you just kind of want to shine a light on? I guess one thing that I've experienced or uh, maybe been even the party where this happened too, as opposed to the person leading the project, um, is where we um, make certain partners feel less than equal on the team. Play favorites. And, uh, yes. Uh, and so by uh, minimizing uh, their role or not shining the light on the things that they've done well, 
sometimes we get less than what they're capable of contributing to the project or program. Uh, and so I think that um, helping to establish a climate whereby there's a high degree of respect, you know, irrespective of the role that one might be playing on the team mm. is important to get the best out of every person on the team. Um, it's such a tough gig to be in a project manager because you've got to advocate for the team at the right times. You've got to advocate for the customer or senior management at right times. You have to advocate for the project all the time, but you don't over advocate for the project. You don't want to do that to the detriment of other goals the organization has. And it's, it is a, a constant adjusting of levers as a PM. It's just a tough, tough job. Yes. Every day is a new day. And things are changing around you. You know, the project isn't operating in isolation. It's part of a bigger system. It's part of the bigger organization. And priorities change in the organization. So not to get overly wed yeah. to the project or program because it will evolve. It will change. Mm. When I was early in my PM career, um, I thought as a leader that I was supposed to constantly advocate for the team and protect the team at all costs and that that was my role. And I missed a lot of things because I was solely focused on that. I missed other things going on in the organization. I missed things going on with the project because I constantly wanted to protect my team. Andy, if, uh, if management came to you and said, I'm going to need that resource off of your team now, I've got something more important to put them on. How did you react to that? See, but that's exactly right. I would have reacted very <laughs> negatively, but that's a short-sighted view yes. because the organization has other priorities other than my team and my project. And so you learn that as you get, I guess, as you get experienced. Mm -hmm. And maybe some people are born with knowing that. I wasn't. And I think that, you know, as a project or program manager, you bring a lot of value when you can help to connect the work that you're doing with other things that are going on in the organization. Right. Yes. Your right. credibility is enhanced tremendously when you can see the bigger picture and where your project or program fits within that. And you look up, you look out, you understand the organization's strategy as best you can and how your project relates to it. Absolutely. Well, Laura Butcher, thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise with us. How can folks get in touch with you if uh, they're interested in your consulting services? Yes. Well, we have a website at www.bluekeypartners.com. So you can find more information about the work that we do in leadership development and learning design there. And of course, I have a LinkedIn profile. So that's a great way to get in touch with me directly. And before you go, we always like to have a little present for our uh, our guests, this manage this coffee mug is yours. Ooh, so uh, use perfect. It. I love coffee, as you can see. So <laughs> I'll put that to good use. Thank you. Thanks again, Laura. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, thank you so much again, Laura. Now a word to our listeners. If you're looking for the credits you need to renew your project management certifications, we are a source of those valuable professional development units. And you've already earned those PDUs just for listening to this podcast. It's easy to claim them. Go to Velociteach.com and choose Manage This Podcast from the top of the page. Click the button that says Claim PDUs and click through the steps. That's it for us here on Manage This. We hope you'll tune back in on March 19th for our next podcast. In the meantime, we'd love to have you visit us at Velociteach.com slash Manage This to subscribe to this podcast, to see a transcript of the show, or to contact us. And tweet us at manage underscore this if you have any questions about our podcasts or about project management certifications. 
That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, keep calm and manage this.